Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 21 of the Movement is Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Carr, and I'm here joined by my long lost but not forgotten co-host, Brendan Rerick. Brendan, how are you tonight? Been, I think it's been almost five episodes since I've last seen you. I'm great. I yeah. just came home from football practice, and um, Jenny has left me with the golden retriever and the eight-year-old, so... Things have been busy. Safe to you? say you have your hands full. Well, we we missed you in your absence. Oh, and you. people were asking about where you've been. And <laughs> he is alive. Um, he is well, but he might be a little overwhelmed and tired. How has your uh, football preseason gone so far? Uh, well, it's, it's much better than last year. We look a lot better than last year. We started off with a loss like last year, uh, but your season's already time. started. Yeah. We had our first game on Friday. We have our second game this Friday, uh, coming up here. So, wow. Uh, very, very high hopes. Uh, we lost to a good team. They were division two state champions last season. Uh, we were, we are division one, but they are a very good team. So we lost, uh, due to, a lack of execution and shooting ourselves in the foot a bunch of times right from the start of the game. Uh, things we need to clean up. And so that's what we've been working on this week and working for a win this Friday. So what's up with you? I've, I've heard your last two podcasts. You had Eric, you've been solo, been answering questions. I did listen yeah, to this. You know, I was just trying to fill the void. Fill the void uh, of your voice not being on the other side. Exactly. and uh, But no, nonetheless, it's been good. But it's nice to have you back, you know? We can, uh, we can chat and catch up and, you know, you know, and, you know we can uh, go back to our book reviews. I actually brought that back last week because I actually forgot about it for the last couple. And um, you have a good question for us this week. I do. So, and this comes out of uh, pure experience because on <laughs> this past Sunday, I injured a client. Uh, whose fault was it? I told him to do it and pick it up. And therefore it falls under my jurisdiction and it's my fault. So I had an athlete, a wrestler who was deadlifting and it was an exercise we've done a bunch and he picked it up and hurt his back. When he picked it up on the first rep, it was our final set. So it was kind of heavy. Um, and so what I wanted to bring up, which seems to be a taboo topic that I've never heard actually anyone talk about uh, in a podcast or, or at, a, at a seminar or anything, is that what do we do when a client gets injured under your watch? Um, and how do you move forward? What what happens? What do you do? Uh, I've had this happen many times in my career now, both during personal training sessions, during group sessions, during large group sessions. And the context is always a little bit different, um, but it always sucks. It definitely, it's something you don't hope to do or you don't shoot for, but it does happen. Um, in the industry. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would like to talk about today is injuries, um, not necessarily like what we do about an injured back or an injured leg, but what do you do when a client gets injured during your session? 
um, because it's yeah, going not to... the technical like rehab part, but like right. as far as your relationship, your communication, your actions. And you're right. Nobody does talk about like, hey, that time I hurt this person, because, of course, like on the outside, looking in in this industry, everybody's perfect. Nobody's hurt somebody. But anybody who's coached uh, long enough will tell you people have got hurt and uh, hurt rather underneath their watch while they're being coached. And like you said, there's a lot of factors that go into someone being injured. Uh, the load, the day, the fatigue, what's going on outside. It's impossible to say for the most part that, you know, you can boil it down to one thing, but obviously looking back when you're the coach, uh, nothing feels worse and you're going to immediately question all of your decision-making leading up to that point. So I think that this is a really good discussion, especially for younger coaches to hear um, as maybe they're going to at some point hurt somebody to hear that people who have probably been doing this much longer than them have undoubtedly made the same mistakes and been through it and turned out to be okay. It doesn't make, doesn't mean we want it to happen, but uh, injuries happen in the weight room. Uh, if you're going to coach, it's going to happen. Yeah. And so I think the first thing is I love the extreme ownership principle. Um, mm -hmm. I immediately take that on and say, my fault. Uh, and when I do that, uh, it takes some of the onus off of them, whether regardless it was their fault or not, or whoever's fault it was. When you take on that responsibility and you look at it through that lens, now we have, well, one, an apology, two, communication, and then three is we have some sort of action or plan moving forward. And the fact that you do feel pain for that person or compassion or you feel bad, I felt awful about this kid hurting his back. Like I know what it's like to hurt your back and it sucks. And he did it because I mean, it's something I told him to do. I picked the weight. I even put the weight on and I felt terrible about it. So that just means that I care. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's a good thing. Right, so we got to reframe that. Um, so I, I took this extreme ownership principle. Uh, I do this with the, my football players too. So again, the context is different. There's a lot more of them, and there's a lot of other things. There's a lot of things that happen um, that necessarily aren't my fault. But when I say, "Yo, when that hamstring you got you pulled there running during the game, that's on me. Like that's something that I I can help reduce." the likeliness of, um, and when you take that mindset, uh, you have an action plan moving forward. Um, and it's also, you create that relationship. Like I got your back, like mm -hmm. it's you, you're in the right place and we're going to figure this out together. So the first thing I did with this kid was I was like, listen, that's my fault. Like I should, I, I, we, I think we went up too fast. That's on me. So uh, let's do X, Y, Z now and see what happens and see how it feels. And I need you to communicate with me for the rest of the workout. And we did, we did, it was probably 20 minutes into the workout and we still got 40 minutes of a workout in. We just changed it up. I showed him some stuff he could do to relieve. So I believe it was a lumbar strain. He pulled lower erectors based off of everything he was telling me. And he had more on the left side than the right. So we just went, hey, we're going to stay upper body for the rest of the workout. And I'm going to show you some techniques, some muscular 
relief stuff, some soft tissue stuff that you can do standing up against a door here or a wall. And you just need to give me feedback the whole time. Cause I had his brother training there too. So mm -hmm. I would tell his brother, Hey, do this. And you're going to do this um, based off of what just happened. And I just want you to communicate with me. And then I immediately called his dad right after we were done and said, Hey, mm -hmm. uh, he hurt his back on a deadlift. It was my fault. I, I went up too fast with the weights. I just wanted to let you know, these are the things that we did after. So we did a ton of upper body and core. And mm -hmm. these are the things that I showed him that I want him to do at home for the next few days. Take some um, NSAIDs or some ibuprofen for the next few days uh, just to get to get through and stay moving. Don't let him get stagnant. And I'm going to check in in two days. And he was very appreciative of that. And he said, we'll monitor it. Um, so I, it's Tuesday. That was on Sunday. So I'm going to call him tomorrow um, and mm -hmm. follow up. So um, that's what happened. I'd like to take the extreme ownership approach now. <laughs> I would, definitely didn't do that in the beginning of my career. It's something you learn uh, yep. to do. But I think when you do that, um, everybody wins and I get better. Like it just means like I'm taking that torch or that responsibility. And now I've got to figure out how do I, I mean, you probably won't stop it from ever happening, happening again, but how do we limit the likeliness of it happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the idea of the extreme ownership piece, besides, you know, just the moral piece that like, yes, we should, you know, take responsibility because we are the uh, person in charge in the weight room. Um, it also from a business and relationship standpoint can go from you losing a client or losing the belief of somebody you work with to actually making them a lifelong client. It actually makes them more endeared to you. In, in my experience, I've seen, you know, we have a policy at MBSC, like someone gets hurt, same thing. One, make sure everything is okay in the immediate. Uh, do give them things to make them feel better. Document the injury. Contact the parents if they're underaged. Um, and then the next day, follow up, call. Okay. Hey, check in, see how they're doing until they come back again. And just those little steps show that you care. And most people are reasonable in understanding that, Hey, sometimes things happen in the weight room within reason, as long as you're not doing something ridiculous and torturing these kids. Um, most parents in that instance understand that, you know, things happen. Um, and if you show that, you know, you're looking out for their best interest and that you care for them, generally speaking, uh, they, they will continue to train with us first off, so long as we're not hurting more people. Um, and it actually, I think almost develops the relationship in an odd way because you took the time to call them and take responsibility for their child, as opposed to just sending them home injured and not saying anything, which is what I think a lot of people who are really scared might do, right? They're like, Oh my God, I can't believe this happened. They want to run from it. Uh, because you do, you want to hide under a rock somewhere when something like yeah. that happens. Uh, but ultimately the right thing to do is go into where it feels uncomfortable. Uh, and, and you learn to do that after you've been through it probably a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember. So my first personal training client ever, and I'm not even, I'm not even going to, I do not remember his name. He came in, told me he had a previously torn ACL 20 years ago and never got it restructured um, mm -hmm. 
And so like, that was his main concern. Other than that, it was like, I just want to be healthier and the, the standard he's in his sixties. So at this point I'm 21 years old. I just started four months ago at boils. So I'd only ever trained myself and trained groups at boils under that system. So that's all I really knew about training somebody else. So I took them through the dynamic warm-up. And I remember we were doing straight leg skips. And now I realize <laughs> straight leg skips aren't good for somebody with a without an ACL. Who's 60? So the, at 60. So he does three of them and then he's on the ground holding his knee. And I I feel fucking terrible. Like I was like, this guy just hold me. The only thing he doesn't want to do is hurt his knee, and I have him do straight leg skips because that's what we do with everybody at Boils because that's mm -hmm. all I know. And he's on the ground, riving in pain, and now he's got to limp out of here. And he did. He limped out of there. I called him the next day, and oh he had to go to uh, his doctor and a physical therapist, and I reached out to him again one more time after that, and I never heard from him again. So... There, he said, "I'm not. I'm not going back with this fucking kid. I'm not going back with this guy. He's gonna, he's gonna tear my ACL or my non-ACL again and rip up." Yeah, my yeah. So, but okay. Terrible feeling. I mean, it's not what I had planned to do, but it's all I knew to do. And as a new trainer, you're not going to know everything. So, mm -hmm. I learned a lot, though. <laughs> I never did straight leg skips. Actually, I never did straight leg skips ever again with the adult population. It was only with athletes uh, because they don't, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's not necessary. It's not needed. And it puts a lot of high velocity with uh, knee extension. Uh, so, so I learned something. Um, that's the, I guess the benefit of that. The consequence of that is that I had to hurt somebody to do it. So ideally that is not what happens, but as part of developing and getting better and learning, you might hurt some people. Um, and I yep. like to think that I hurt people a lot less now in my career uh, than I did earlier in my career because I definitely had injuries, not just from like an exercise selection standpoint, but also um, letting people do kind of stupid things that I knew I should not have let them do. Uh, for example, like an athlete with uh, he was doing rear foot elevated split squats with dumbbells in his hand and there was dumbbells underneath him because somebody left their dumbbells there and i saw it and i didn't say anything because i was like ah it's, it's fine of course he drops the dumbbells with his hand still on him and smashes all of his fingers on both sides yep. i was like you gotta be kidding me like but i knew better and from then on i never let that happen again so there's these things that happen that um, are part of the natural process of training and learning and getting better. And unfortunately that can come sometimes come at the expense of, of individuals uh, that you are training, especially mm -hmm. when you are a new trainer. Uh, no, I never yep. went into a session trying to do that or hoping for that. Uh, but it is a part and maybe a necessary part of the process. And you can't stop everything. Like, no, Sometimes when you're lifting, you just pull something or you just get hurt. Like it had yeah. nothing to do with your exercise selection process. It had nothing to do with the, 
that they didn't sleep enough that night or that it was too heavy. Sometimes you just move wrong and it happened. Um, yeah. So like, and I think so that you brought up a good point about a lesson that I learned and you just nailed it on the last story of you hurting somebody um, where you said like you had a little inkling, you had that little feeling that you should have said something or done something different. And part of being a coach and maturing is understanding when to listen to that voice. And so, because now you probably just act on it. Hey, just get those dumbbells out of the way, guys, before you go. When you're a younger coach, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to, you know, it might be an athlete you haven't really coached before. And you're like, ah, don't worry about it. Or, you know, and you don't say it. Like, I just, I can think about this story. I've told this story at a, mom, a bunch of times where I had this woman who was probably in her mid-40s. And she was only at Bennett Boyles probably for a week, couple weeks. And she was in an adult group. And we had hurdle jumps or hurdle hops that time. And these were just like either over the ladder or over the six-inch hurdles, right? So not exceedingly huge. But we were doing one-leg hops. And I remember, you know, kind of thinking like, I don't know if this, if this lady can do these or not. Now, she wasn't in great shape yet. But she was working hard. And... Her being like, no, I really want to do them. And I'm like, all right. Sure enough, about two hops in, sheer her ankle folded up like a beach chair right when she landed. And that thing swelled up. It must have swelled up before her. she hit the ground. I mean, this thing was like a freaking grapefruit attached to her ankle. And I heard she was crying. And luckily, she didn't. I'm not laughing at you. Yeah. I'm laughing at your at your, at your description, folding up like a beast. <laughs> yeah, I felt so bad, and I, I, I mean, she she was in shock. Luckily, she didn't break it; it was just badly sprained. Um, but I remember what she immediately said. She looked at me and said, "I'm a hairdresser. Like, I can't. I'm not gonna be able to go to work." And like hairdressers are like uh, personal trainers. Like, if you're listening to this, like they don't get like paid vacation time. Typically, like if you don't work, like you don't get paid. And I remember thinking like, oh, shit. Like this woman, she had two kids. Uh, she couldn't go to work. The freaking ankle was jacked up. And I'm, I remember being like, oh, my God, I am a freaking mourn because I thought it before. That little voice in my head. It's like a little Mike Boyle in my head that was like, you probably shouldn't let her do hurdle hops. And uh, I did. And this was the same thing really early in my career. And now, like, I immediately am like, oh, no, how about we go uh, try box jump on two legs over here? And so you learn where, okay, this is where I need to be cautious because the consequences could severely outweigh uh, the benefits. And now, like, you, you just don't make those mistakes anymore. But like you said, early on, it, it, there's really nothing you can do uh, probably until you you make a few mistakes that – stick hard enough in your mind and that feeling that was in the pit of your stomach, how bad you felt kind of drills it into your head. Yeah. It, that's the hard part about this is I don't want to say I, it really, like I don't want to say that you have to hurt some people to get better no. <laughs> to become a really great trainer. But that's the truth is you kind of do. And it's kind of part of the process. And mm -hmm. of course you, you read all the books, you go to the seminars, you go and do an internship and you, you might hear us say this on the podcast and now you know about it and it's still going to happen. 
Um, and again, yep. I'm 13, 12, 13 years in, and it happened on Sunday. And it's still the worst feeling in the world. Um, and I'm not proud of it. I'm proud of how I handled it and that now I know almost exactly what to do and how it works. Of course, every situation is a little bit different, but I'm very comfortable mm -hmm. with my abilities in responding instead of reacting to the situation if it does happen. So, for example, I'm just going to just to throw out there uh, the, the thought process. So after he hurt his back on that deadlift and is like, okay, let's break down the situation. What are you feeling right now? What is something we, like you said, that we can do to try to make it maybe feel a little bit better? Sometimes it is just, hey, let's sit down, take a break, and maybe it is go home. At, in this situation, because he was training with his brother, I wanted to keep him moving. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't want to, and he had to drive home. And the one thing I know about back pain is the second you sit down, you ain't getting <laughs> back up. So I was like, hey, Let's just keep moving. I want you to come over here. I want you to massage the muscles on the side of your spine and your hips. Tell me how that feels. Can you hit that spot? And then his brother was over here doing sled pushes. He was doing the core stuff. He was doing push-ups. He was doing all the stuff that I was going to have him do on the next circuit. And mm -hmm. so I said, okay, you can still do the push-pull with a lighter weight. You can still do the curls. And then we'll roll out your back and keep stretching. And I just want you to keep moving. If it gets worse, let me know, uh, and I might just have to send you both home because you need to you need to drive home and get home as quick as you can. Uh, but he didn't need that, so we finished the session. And I, again, I called his father. We spoke, and then I went back and I thought, like, okay, what what could I have changed? So could I have done a better warm up? Um, I don't think so. I don't think there was more from a warm up perspective. We did all the things that. I like to do or that I wanted them to do to get warm and prepare for deadlifts that day. So then I thought like, okay, I went through my deadlift, like, cause they each, uh, both brothers are, they're four years different in age. So they deadlift different mm -hmm. amounts. So younger brother doesn't go up as heavy. Older brother goes a lot heavier. And I think what happened was, is I did, I had too big of a jump on that last set and that was my fault. So I think we went up, he would, he did 155 for eight. And then because of the, I was using 10, 15 pound plates, I threw on 25. So he actually jumped 50 pounds on that last set and we went to 195. So he's done 195 or sorry, that's 205. He did 205. We've done 205. We've done 225 before, but it was just way too big of a jump. And then I thought like, okay, what was that a lapse in judgment? Was I just not paying attention? Like, what can I do next time to make sure that I don't let that happen? Uh, and maybe it is just being more aware of the situation. Or maybe then I thought, like, maybe I'll have the younger brother deadlift in the first round. So it's his weights, just mm -hmm. go 20 pounds at a time. And then brother number two, the older brother, stronger, the one that got hurt, will deadlift in circuit number two so he's just the hardest part mm -hmm. is the changing of the weights for the different yeah. individuals and then i lose track of who did what when and how many reps and and i try to keep track of all that so 
I kind of break it down. Like, how do I not let this happen again? Like, and why mm-hmm. did it happen? So that's kind of what, what my thought process was. So I dealt with the situation, I communicated, and then I thought like, okay, how do I not let this happen again? I think that's what I'm probably going to do for both bench press. And so we bench press one day, like that's our main focus with a bunch of other single leg core stuff and sleds. And then trap bar is the other day. So I'm going to have them bench press separately instead of at the same time. So I stop mixing their weights and I'm going to do the same thing with trap bar. So I, I think you have to go back and reflect and review. I think this is another part of you use the word maturing as a trainer mm-hmm. is now I go back and I say like, okay, why? And then what can we do to make sure this is less likely to happen again? I don't want to say never happen again because shit happens. Um, and again, mm-hmm. it, I'm probably, I'm going to, if you do this for a living and you train, I know in football, especially when I have 65 kids and me lifting at the, all at one time, injuries are going to happen. Um, that's, that's the nature of it. I try to limit them with my exercise selection. I try to limit that with my communication, telling them, hey, if it hurts your back, you got to tell me, which half of them <laughs> they do. don't always do. No. Yeah, not that they don't always do. Or, uh, hey, you, you know, you probably should have told me that you had a slip disc or you had spondylolisthesis in your back or that you had your shoulder reconstructed three months ago. Like, that would have been nice to know. Um, but 13 and 14 and 15 year old boys don't always tell you these things. And then I find out after they've already tried bench pressing and pull-ups and they can't lift their arm anymore. Um, so like sometimes again, but if I take that extreme ownership principle and I say, okay, I need that makes, that means I have to keep communicating more and better. And I have to keep my exercise selection on point. Um, but also I need to be kind to myself and say, sometimes you're going to make mistakes. Sometimes people are going to get hurt. Um, And as long as we minimize that as much as possible and we reflect on it and try to get better, I I think you're a pretty damn good trainer if you do that. Yeah. And I think what you brought up too is I think why you see more division now uh, in our industry on things like exercise selection or just training beliefs. Um, it's because I feel like you lots of times you're having discussions between people who are in two different contexts. And so when you're someone who is coaching a large volume of people like you do, or I do, and you're having a discussion with someone who maybe just online coaches, or it's just like a fitness person on the internet and doesn't actually coach anybody at all. Uh, they don't have these experiences to color their beliefs or color their exercise selection or color, you know, color their training philosophy. You know, I, I think to Mike, in most of the decisions that we make from a training perspective, he always said, what's the quote? He's like, I remember him saying, like, I shifted through the shit and injured people for 25 years. Uh, so you guys didn't have to make the same mistakes as me. And, um, you know, that and again, even though someone who says that to your face, you're still going to make the mistakes uh, as you and yeah. I have. Um, but it's funny because I think a lot of times you have people who say, Oh, why don't you do this exercise? Why don't you do this? Well, because I had this, these multiple experiences where it didn't go well and I'm still getting results by not doing that. And so the number one thing we're entrusted to do 
from a training process is to keep people healthy and keep them from getting hurt, uh, especially when you're entrusted to someone's children. It's even more, uh, there's a little more gravity there. And so uh, really that's, I think the root of all our decision-making lots of times is, Hey, like uh, just from my experience, I don't really like using that because of things that happened in the past. And that's perfectly fine because for you, like you said, now you're thinking about, okay, how can I get better? Uh, how can I do a better job selecting weights? How can I manage a group better? Or what would my exercise selection be? Uh, it's all of those decisions really often come from a negative experience prior. I can't tell you the number of times since, because I I've been out of boils now for the last eight years, and <laughs> there is so many times where I've strayed away sometimes from the philosophy. And something happens, and then I think, God damn it, Mike was right. And, it, <laughs> and I hate to admit that, but I see something or I watch somebody else do something, and then I see it happen, and I'm like, like you said, Mike told us, I did that 25 years ago. Don't do it. And yet, eh, I'll do it. I'll try it with this person. And it happens. Exactly what he said was going to happen. So I love this. I love the analogy of, of stairs. So mm -hmm. if you had the choice between starting at the bottom of the stairs or starting at the top of the stairs, I mean, I'm going to start at the top of the stairs because that's what working under coach Boyle and his philosophy allowed me to do was I didn't have to start at the bottom of the stairs and take all those stairs up. I got to start at the top and the end of the story is that the stairs just keep going. So <laughs> I'm starting at the bottom of my stairs, but not at his bottom of stairs, which he started exactly. his, his climb in 1980. So yeah. uh, his 30 years experience, you know, they sit standing on the shoulders of giants. I got to start a little bit higher. And I like to think that I'm going to bring up with my 30, 40 years experience, your 30, 40 years experience. Somebody else will get to start at the top of the stairs and carry that that torch on forward. Um, the one thing, the one caveat to this, because I like playing devil's advocate, is we have to be careful of the N equals one bias. And mm -hmm. I know I've been um, I've been a, a component. All right, this has happened to me. I know it's happened to Mike, and Mike's come out later and said yeah that's that was probably wrong because uh the end of one basically that oh it happened to me so that means it's going to happen to everybody else so yeah uh, i hurt my back reaching for a door so hey nobody reached for doors anymore. or <laughs> i i do this and it makes me feel better and i sleep great uh okay maybe that's a fluke maybe that's just you uh, I eat a pine cone and I feel stronger, right? So everyone should eat pine mm -hmm. cones. Um, so that N equals one bias, we have to be very, very aware, uh, you as a trainer and I as somebody who dispenses fitness information, uh, I have to be very aware of my own biases and mm -hmm. that just because it works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for somebody else. And I, we, we probably see this the most in the diet world. Right, like I do keto, yeah. I lost seventy pounds. Somebody else does keto, and they're in the hospital. Right, I do this shake <laughs> diet, and I feel great. Somebody else does this shake diet, and now they're anemic and they feel terrible. So, 
it's probably most prevalent in the nutrition or diet world. Um, but I just want to throw that out there that we need to be very, very careful of the, the biases that we have in the N equals one study, right? So just mm-hmm. because it works for you or worked for that client or works for this client doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody else. Or just because I did, right? Just because I did a straight leg uh, march or straight leg uh, dyna- part of the dynamic warm-up and that guy hurt his knee, I immediately got rid of it for everybody because that means everybody else is going to hurt their knees. And it's mm-hmm. like, ah, probably not, but it's probably a better decision to take it out for certain people but not everybody. So we got to be really, really careful to not allow that to happen. So it's really an awareness thing. Um, and again, yep. this and is, comes back down to reflecting, like reflect upon it, like, okay, should I not have everybody do this or should I just select who can and who can't? Yeah. And I think it's also understanding that like biases are helpful when they help you in your context and understanding what yours are, are important. So like a lot of our biases at MBSC are because we have large volumes of children and untrained individuals. And so our decision-making is directly influenced by that. And we only do things that we can coach and have equipment for en masse, right? Like, hey, we need 10 Kaisers, we need 10 sets of dumbbells, we need 10 platforms all of our decisions are going to be uh, determined by that. And as in any setting, like really your logistics, your audience are the people that are going to color how you train. And so our biases allow us to do the best job that we can in the environment with the population that we have. And then when I go and I talk to someone who only trains powerlifters individually and is a powerlifting enthusiast, and they're like, oh, well, why don't you do – you know, back west side and, you know, why don't you do back squats and, you know, why don't you, you know, deadlift or power clean from the floor with a straight bar? And I say, well, for us, that doesn't work because their setting is completely different, right? And they have individuals who are invested in probably learning those skills uh, specifically. They want to get better at those specific aspects where the people who come to see us do not, right? And so I think that right there is the root of all uh, issues between coaches right there is typically I see these arguments going on between people who have completely different settings, completely different populations, thus completely different beliefs. And that's okay. They can both be the right beliefs for your own setting, but probably not in each other's. If I went into their world with my beliefs and they went into my, their, my world with their beliefs, we both fail. And so understanding that um, and looking around and saying, it's okay to have your biases if they help you in your context, um, right. but not being absolutist at the same time. Yeah. But the problem with biases, it's not that people ask questions. Like I'm fine with them being mm-hmm. like, why do you do this? Why do you do that? It's no, that no. they say you should, right? Like, yes, exactly. You, you should be doing West side. You should be back squatting. You should be doing this. It'd be the same as me going in, to them and saying, well, you should be doing single leg training. You shouldn't be back squatting. You, this is where, this is the problem is that that's a closed, that, that, that individual or that line of narrative is closed minded. Mm -hmm. You don't have enough open minded or open ended questioning. Um, and the, one of the, my favorite things to do at the beginning of the CFSC is I tell people that 
our CFSC program, what you're about to learn today is good for about 80% of your people. So I like to think of the CFSC, Certified Functional Strength Coach, as we cast a really big net and we catch a lot of fish. But you don't catch a lot of fish. The Certified Functional Strength Coach is terrible for powerlifters. Terrible. It's yeah. good for building a base like of, of capacity, uh, but it's terrible for winning a powerlifting meet. You won't win... Sir, Straight up, you will not win a powerlifting meet doing certified functional strength coach. I'm sorry, like you just, yeah. and you will not, you will not win the uh, Olympic lifting medal at the Olympics doing the CFSC program. You, you will not. You could build a good base. You could help use it for somebody rehabbing or their first whatever eight weeks of training, but it's horrible for Olympic lifters. Uh, so there's like this, there's these certain, like you said, contexts that it's not going to be helpful for and you need to know what what lane is yours uh and something again our biases work great for that but our biases would not work for certain other goals or adventures or beliefs or what other people like want to do like you said powerlifting or somebody who only wants to olympic lift or go to an olympic lifting competition we are not the right philosophy or program for that and i'm more than happy mm -hmm. to admit that and i think that's where where we get in trouble as a profession on the medias and the arguments is when people say you should that's the narrative that is a problem because it's closed-minded mm -hmm. you should do this you should do that you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that when it should just be like why like why are you choosing to do that like, is there a better option? I don't know. Maybe in the in the context, maybe there is. Maybe there is a better option. So I have the right to change my mind. Or maybe I haven't explained my context well enough to, to tell you why it doesn't or explain why that your bias doesn't work for me. So. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, one more question about injuries is yeah. what is the worst injury or the craziest injuries you uh, experience that you've seen in the weight room that I've seen in the weight room I think it's got to be it, so does it have to be me or what I've seen somebody else do no we can't no if we start digging into the YouTube videos it's you have to have been there you no, didn't I mean, you don't have to be responsible it's the oh stuff, yeah you were like, there as long as you were in the room okay I was yeah so it's the knee stuff that's that's happened at MBSC before um, broad jumps. Oh. Why we don't yep. do broad jumps? Um, single leg hops. I mean, they're necessary, but they are the most advanced, probably plyometric drill that we can do. And we've seen a couple, couple ACLs, couple meniscus, couple uh, MCLs go. Uh, part of the training process. It's the worst feeling in the world. Um, I think those are. I've seen kettlebells go through mirrors. I've seen barbells go through mirrors and stuff, but there was no injuries. So I got to say yep. the, the plyometric knee stuff is yep. the worst I've seen. Well, to your note about the dumbbells on the floor, uh, we once had a gentleman um, who had left his previous set dumbbells next to the bench, and he was now benching dumbbell benching his next set um, with those dumbbells on the ground. Again, a warning, do not leave dumbbells next to the bench because at the end of his set, 
he then let the other ones fall down while leaving his hands like right next to them. And then the dumbbells bounced and he crushed his finger in between the two. And now that finger does not look like the other fingers because he lost the whole tip of it. Uh, so that's the, no, it was not my group, Brendan. Okay. It was not my group. Uh, okay. I was there that morning. He, it was not a big spectacle. He actually played it off. Like very, he said, Oh, can I just have a, a bandaid or like a paper <laughs> towel? And we were like, uh, uh, you need to go to the hospital, sir. Um, but it yeah. was, uh, yeah, but that's the, again, those are things where I now I look, I'm like, get those dumbbells off the ground or Mike talking about the story about BU with the stability balls, and the non burst stability balls and the treadmills, you know, they call them non burst stability balls because they don't burst very easily. And Mike was saying how a bunch of the guys after the workout in between tempo runs were kicking around a stability ball while the treadmill was running. The stability ball went underneath the treadmill, shot the treadmill up vertically straight into the mirror. And at the end, that treadmill was still running, standing up vertically with the full stability ball, not popped underneath it, right? So imagine if somebody was on top of that treadmill, uh, they would have got a face full of the mirror or the wall um, on the other side. So, but those are those scary instances are, you know, why you make all other, those decisions. My in other first place. favorite Mike story is the one where they were doing resisted runs at BU oh and there was a, a band with a metal leader that was hooked to somebody's waist belt and they were doing resisted and the leader snapped and it came back mm -hmm. and it hit the guy in the forehead and it split his basically split yes. his whole head in half because the yeah. band shot it back. Luckily, it wasn't his eye, but his forehead. Uh, but it's like just stuff like that. Like you just would never think uh, that the those resistance bands would snap, or that a stability ball would go underneath a treadmill, and mm -hmm. it happens. And all you have to do is say, "Hey, get those stability balls out of here," or "Let's not do that anymore," um, or "Let's check the bands before every workout." Like. Yeah, there's a mm -hmm. reason why we have rules. <laughs> another, another thing, a question that we always ask every kid or adult before they get on our treadmill is sometimes we have to run inside and we have to do things like tempo runs where the treadmill will be running and the athlete will step on it while it's running, run, step off, then the next athlete will go, right? So they're getting on and off while it's running question that you need to ask is have you ever got on and off a treadmill while it's running before when they quickly answer yes say hold on just want to make sure you understand what i'm asking you the treadmill's running you step on you run then you step off could you do that because sometimes they go oh no no i i didn't understand what you were saying um yes exactly because very often i've seen I've seen somebody step on and go flying off the back, make sure there was nothing behind the treadmill, like a, a bike or another piece of equipment, because especially these light little 12-year-olds, they could cover some distance <laughs> if they go off the back. Um, so you want to make sure all is clear. And again, I've seen a kid fall off the back of a treadmill, so not fun. Uh, to tell the parents, more, like, I've oh, seen yeah, more yeah. than a kid. I've seen multiple kids no. fly up a dreadful. Yeah, it's not and fun. So, and, yeah, there's a lot of you learn to be walk. cautious. Yes, but no, there's a reason why, why we ask that question, right? And there's a reason why, why do we? 
There's a pro. Why don't we buy metal plyo boxes? Uh, <laughs> wood plyo boxes. Metal plyo boxes because we've sent multiple people to the hospital after jumping on metal plyo boxes and losing their entire shin and passing out after looking at it. We've had. Yeah. I remember that summer we had the fire department at the gym three times in one week. So, yeah. uh, yes, there's <laughs> enough of those stories. I think we've uh, we've we've beaten that one up pretty good. So yeah. just know that injuring people is not the goal, but it is part of the process, the evolution of becoming a very very good trainer or strength coach. Do your due diligence. One, immediately make sure they're okay. Two. You communicate with them or their parents, and then three, you reflect upon and follow up, and then three, you reflect upon on what could have changed or what you could do different or what you could do better, um, and then go back to training people because it's it's part of the process. So don't be too hard on yourself, um, but you should feel bad. That means you care. Mm -hmm. That means you're probably going to get better. So, all right, Brendan, do you have a book for this week? I do. I just finished reading, and this is all based off of our conversation with, uh, oh, the conversation I had with Doug, because you weren't able to make that night. Yep. Uh, the Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. Great read. Uh, it's actually a phenomenal nutrition book, and mm -hmm. not just from like a nutrition standpoint of like what you should eat, but a nutrition standpoint of psychologically why we choose to eat the way we do and psychologically how you can maybe manipulate um, your nutrition or whatever diet you're on. And that, I think the biggest thing I got from it is being uncomfortable is part of every process. Like if you want to get really, really good at something, you got to struggle. Like the, the success is in the struggle. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something that we always hear. It's cliche. But hearing it in a book form with all the studies and the examples, and it was very, very good. So The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter is my book recommendation this week. Outstanding. And Doug, could you, Doug gets a nice little shout out in that book as well. Yes. Doug, Doug was his trainer. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, very, very good. Uh, I enjoy that. Michael Easter is a, a nice guy as well. And so highly recommend that read. Um, completely unrelated to any topic that we've discussed uh, is my current book that I'm reading, which is called The True History of the American Revolution. If you are a complete nerd uh, and like American history, as do yes. I, then this would be a very enjoyable read. And so uh, what it does is it, it has a lot of first-person accounts. Um, and secondary person accounts. Uh, so it's very detailed. It's not like when you'd learn the American history in, um, you know, in high school, in middle school. And they're like, you know, we came here and we didn't like that. They taxed the stamps and we threw the tea in the Harbor and the end. And we signed the declaration of independence. Uh, it's very detailed as far as the different things that were going on at the time. Um, and it's very interesting, uh, to me, but, uh, I'm also just a history nerd. So, uh, if you like history, I would highly recommend this. I got it on Amazon. 
Um, and I'm actually getting through it pretty quickly. I finished the book Rogues, which I recommended last week, which I I very much enjoyed. And so yeah, this is I've the, got that the book on my now. List. So, All right, we have, what do we yeah. got coming up? Level twos. Yeah, I'm going to Croatia tomorrow to teach a level one and a level two. Nice. Then I'll be back on Monday, and then I'm going to Italy on Thursday. It makes zero sense, so just don't don't question it. Uh, I'm going to take a few days vacation, and then I'm going to teach a level one, level two in Italy in uh, in Milan the following weekend. And then we have what else? We have September. We have I've got uh, New York San City. Francisco. Oh, yeah. I've got San Francisco um, on September 11th. I've got October. I've got Big Sky, Montana. Mm-hmm. And we also then, have Edmonton, Alberta, Colorado Springs, uh, level Colorado. ones, level twos. Also in October, uh, end of October, we have Budapest, Hungary. So yeah, a lot of events coming up. Very nice. October, we also have Reading, Pennsylvania, level one, level two. So October is a big month for level ones and level twos kind of everywhere. So yeah, if you are but looking now out for the that. summer over the fall, so September, October, November are always pretty big months for CFSCs. Then it dies down for the holidays, and then yep. we're back at it in February. So, Yep. All right. Well, until next time, thanks for putting up with us, everybody. Yeah, good talk. I'm glad to be back. See I you out there. You. I missed you. Yep, we'll be, we'll get we'll get this again. We're gonna get back on track here. Well, we got one coming out tomorrow, so this one will come out the following. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Have a Thanks good night, everybody. Bye bye. Yeah.